we're talking about this show where we're waking up the world and we're waking up the world to this idea of pure prevention of not waiting for signs of not waiting until something is needed or something is wrong before you go into a mode of really life-saving activities before you can do that even for yourself you have to address a concept of belief and the belief is that your life matters and to help you and to help me and to take us on this journey together is Jenny Swadron. And Jenny, please unmute, turn on your camera and join me in the studio. And here she comes. Ta-da! We have your picture. And as soon as you unmute your microphone, we'll be able there to go. Yay! Ta-da! I love that. You're here. I love it too. Thank you so much, Jackie. This has been such a work in progress. You know, Jenny, the lovely part about technology is that from where you are and where I am, we can actually sort of be in the same place. Isn't that true? I love it. <laughs> where are you today? I'm in Victoria, British Columbia, and it's stunning here. Oh, yeah. That's gorgeous. Yeah. Feels very privileged to live where, where we live. So now I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. The first one is, how did you end up in Victoria, British Columbia? <laughs> that could take the hour, Jackie. Sure, you want to know the answer to that? I, I, I was here many times, and um, I already I came from Toronto and moved to BC and to Vancouver um, in 1998, and then I took a a route to Korea for a year and then uh, I came back to Canada I came back to BC and it was I was looking for something quieter mm. I was looking for somewhere much quieter in Korea there's so many neon signs and there's, there's such a you know um, personal spaces uh, I was needing that and I I just came here not knowing anybody at the time and just breathed easy and all these wonderful synchronicities happened at the very same time, which was a huge sign of yes. Ah, all right. So from 2003. Three. Wow. 18 years. Nice. Where's the time go? <laughs> so Moving from the East Coast of Canada to the West Coast of Canada, then to Korea, then back to the West Coast of Canada. Yeah, this is not what most people um, think of as you know a typical journey. And of course, we're learning more and more that there's no journey that's typical. But what is it now that lights you up and brightens your day and keeps you engaged in the world. Because if you're living in Victoria, I mean, you could just as easily, you know, enjoy life without having to be engaged in all of these other things. True enough. So what lights me up? Mm -hmm. Life. Life lights me up, Jackie. Having at some points in my life chosen not to have life, having life is the most rewarding beautiful humbling exquisite experience 
that I could ever have. And I just live in gratitude every day. And I, I mean it when I say it, because I know that I'm also a beacon of hope for what we're talking about today. And besides that, I love nature and I love writing and I love to dance and I love music and I love people, etc. <laughs> this is a life lit up by all the things that you love and where you love to live, Junie. And I am so delighted that you were able to come on and share this experience with us today. So thank you for being willing. Thank you for inviting me. You mentioned it. And we're going to go there. There was a time that living was not your highest priority. Right. What was going on in your world? Which time? I had multiple times that and multiple um, uh, attempts. And, um, and it's a, situ a, set, a subject that I was never willing to talk about. You know, you talked about survivor's guilt and I didn't even know the word, word until today. Mm. I knew it for people who had, you know, car accidents and, or, or whatever and their, their whole family died and they're still alive or things like that. But I never thought of it in terms of my own and certainly I've had it, but it's changing. So the, the, the story goes, it was a difficult, 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 abusive and neglectful childhood. And, um, and I've always been a bright spirit. I always felt inside of me, the glass is half full and it's just been my nature. However, I was diagnosed with bipolar when I was 20 and that, and it wasn't that diagnosis, but it, that it was the effects of it and it was a buildup and it was the slow drip kind of thing that you don't even know it's happening. The PTSD that comes after the fact. And because I was always resilient and able to just kind of jump back into action and, and then I couldn't. And then it seemed to be something that was going on in my brain. And I've learned since that there is a truth to that. And, but it doesn't have to define you, doesn't have to, you don't have to know that that's your identity and that there are ways through. So I've learned them and, um, and I practice them and I teach them. So that's an interesting journey that you just took us on. And I want to unpack pieces of it as much as you're willing. Okay. The value of the journey and the value of what you've learned. The points where you lost hope and the understanding that you know, there was nothing wrong with you, there was something wrong with you physically that could be addressed. There was some electrical things in the brain that weren't firing. You know, they all of the different ways that they explain these things now when they talk in terms of mental health diagnoses. Jenny, before you knew that there was a path back, what did you want? I wanted to live. 
I wanted to live more than anything in the world. And it's counterintuitive to think that you want to live when you want to take your life. But for me, when it got to the place of hopelessness, when my the brain, my brain was just going in this, this loop of suicidal ideation, of the things that I would tell myself, and I couldn't seem to turn it off. It seemed like it was my only way of turning off what I've come to call the, uh, what have I called it? I haven't called it like that for a long time, but it, it, it's like the tortured chamber of my mind because I just wasn't able to turn it off. And so that um, knowing how I used to be and how I embraced life to not feeling like I have those skills anymore. And, this, and, and even though I, I learned them and I became a psychotherapist and I, and I went to uh, uh, various workplaces and talked about mental health in the workplace and I was doing all these different things I, uh, there were times even then that I, that this uh, black cloud would come over me. And then there was a huge amount of shame because I know this stuff, I've studied this stuff, I practice this stuff and what is going on? And I had a really good mask. A lot of people didn't know anything was going on. Well, there you go. There's several things you just said in there that are so worth exploring because we'll start with this last one about the mask. Hmm. I finally created a suicide risk factor assessment and I put it up on a landing page. You can't tell by looking. And I, it was like, everybody is so obsessed with looking for signs that their kids at risk or their loved ones at risk, because that's the conventional thinking about suicide permission, uh, prevention is, which to me is really intervention. You know, it's that you're looking for signs, right? More and more, we're finding two things. One, the masks have gotten better. They've always have gotten so better. They've gotten, yeah, the masks. Yes. You yes. really can't tell by looking. And so what's happening is that oftentimes the first sign that someone's in trouble is an attempt and they don't all survive. And that's blindsiding people. And then they go out and they find that there are checklists and there are these, and I'm, I'm, not, a fond, I'm not fond of suicide sim, signs checklists, especially for parents for two reasons. One, it wasn't until after my daughter attempted that I even know those check, even found out those checklists existed a little late. And the other is that they are the most guilt producing document in the world because now I know that the brain, the reticular activating system is gonna screen out what you don't wanna see. And a parent doesn't wanna see their kid is at risk. So they're not going to see the signs, even if they're there most of the time. Right. Yeah. So that was a very sad truth. Awareness. Yeah. Sorry. Sad so truth. You've got a lot that you 
went through and you brought up something else that I've heard before, which is this idea that it's not about wanting to die. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you want to live. live. Yeah, It's, it's not about wanting to die. What is it about? It's about wanting to stop the pain. It's about wanting something that just will stop the pain after months and months and months of trying to. And whether it's physical pain or emotional pain, the bottom line is that hopelessness is hopelessness. Right. What broke through the hopelessness for you? What was the first thing that put a crack in that concrete? Hmm. Well, it's it's multifold. Um, caring about others, perhaps even more than myself, of not at the time, you know, still coming from a you know a very unhealthy mind, uh, of knowing how I would turn things around, but wanted to turn them around for the people who loved me. Um, was a way to start the, you know, start the process of, I can't say trying harder, because I think I tried everything I knew. But it wasn't an option then. That's really key. And I want to just because there's so much stigma, misplaced stigma around suicide, and around hopelessness. It's not about lack of willpower. And I agree with you. It's not about trying harder. But it is sometimes what you just shared with about this, that sometimes love for something outside of yourself, when you can't find it for yourself, finding it for something or someone outside of yourself can be enough to put a crack in the concrete. To sure. allow that flower. Sometimes it was just my pet. Yeah. My cats. Cool. Mm-hmm. Cool, cool. One person, uh, actually more than one. I mean, I've, I've put myself kind of in the line of fire on this whole conversation. And I've had people challenge me or I found it challenging to hear them. They were just sharing their opinion. And their opinion was that someone taking their own life was selfish. Mm. And I heard this a lot around the time that Robin Williams was in the news. And you know, there's a whole nother thing I have about celebrities who take their own lives, but let's stick on this one topic. When someone, when you were struggling with dying, and making that decision. What would you say if you were trying to explain this to someone who had a mindset that said suicide is selfish? I would say that it has nothing to do with the person who thinks it will, that does. That it's not about anyone outside of the person who is nobody that I, you're not coming from a rational mind, number one, you're coming from a very disturbed mind. 
And it's not about anyone outside of that person. Most people are not trying to, you know, get revenge in that way. I've and that's what I've heard. Yeah, I've heard the opposite of that. That that it was all it was a part of the rationale, if you will, even though it's not rational, there's a rationale to it that people have shared is that they thought the world would be better off without them, that their families would be unburdened by them. So it That's, was the opposite of selfish. It was in the, in, the, in the mind, in the moment, there was a rationale of selflessness. Yes, and I, I agree with that one as well. I absolutely do. And I guess what I'm saying is when it doesn't, it's, it's when a person goes to that extreme, I think that it is because of the pain inside. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think there's a, for me, there was a lot of guilt attached to it as well. And a guilt because I knew that it would be hurtful. Hmm. people that love me I also believe that God gave me life and I wasn't supposed to take it and so there were all these things that were going on but what I like to tell people who have lost somebody from suicide is to please don't think that you didn't do enough because a person who is choosing to do this final act they can't necessarily take in how much you love them what you're doing or what you're not doing it really is a personal moment and and i think that's very very helpful um the inability to understand this journey kept me silent on this topic for more than 20 years well there's so much pain shame stigma it wasn't until you brought up Robin Williams that I ever mentioned it out loud. Mm -hmm. My own attempts and the last one, a miracle, because I had a near-death experience and came through it when nobody thought I would. And so that too caused the, you know, what do I tell people? And and so that's when I became a little bit more public, but then I wanted to shut it down again because there was so much fear and shame. And, um, and then it was, well, now I'm writing a book about it. Where does, in your mind, yeah. where does the shame around suicide come from? It's a very good question. I think, I think it's self-shame, number one, that I wasn't able to reach my own goals, mm -hmm. that it's very personal, that for someone like myself, who's been really a lover of life, and how many people since I was just this big, would tell me stories they said they would never, ever, ever share with anyone else. And at first it would say, why are they telling me? And then it stopped. I stopped asking that question because they could tell me because they could trust me. And so there've been so many people throughout my life who have said, Junie, you've really made such a difference. 
So to take that step when I've given them hope to, to the place where I've given them like, how did, how did, you know, there's, there's so much to think about. And just that I, I, it's like, wow, there's so much shame that I would go there. And, and I guess back to my spiritual beliefs that we've been given life and to take that life is not supposed to be my choice. I don't know if I still have that same feeling. I think it's a very individual thing and I don't believe we'll be punished on the other side of the, uh, anymore either. Yeah. There's, a, there's a lot of beliefs that held sway on the topic of suicide and every culture in the world is different. Mm. Every culture is different on this topic. It was noble for a soldier to fall on their sword. You know, they had great language around it. It, it is an honor to be of a level in Japan that when you are dishonored, you would take your own life by committing Harry Carey, you know, a very ritual suicide. There's, there's this whole cultural mismatch around the world. And then there's the fact that it was outside of the cultures that actually have ritual around it. In every other culture, it was that I've been able to find, it was considered a crime against the village. Mm. And one of the reasons it was considered that way is because it's contagious. When one person takes their own life, they give tacit approval to everyone in their circle to do the same thing. And when we started losing our cultural inhibitions, we started having different conversations religiously we started we stopped seeing it as a crime and we started seeing it as a right without a cultural shift in understanding mm. you know, what we have now is the result of that and i called it you know a wave of suicides now we're dealing with the tsunami and it's mm. time for us to peel back the curtains and Joni, I'm just so grateful that you're willing to come on here and do this because the pain is personal. And whether it fits into somebody's diagnosis book does or not, doesn't matter. It's pain. Mm -hmm. So destigmatizing this, decriminalizing this, and making the conversation open. That's what we're doing. Right. And many years ago, 20, in fact, after uh, a time where I took myself to a hospital because I was afraid of what could happen and I wanted to be, but actually it was a safer place to be. And, um, and so I very, very shortly afterwards and people, you know, I was against meds and all of that stuff, but very quickly, whatever it was kicked in um, and I was back to me again. I had already done so much work on myself and that I didn't have to go back and start, oh, you know, from the beginning, it was just like my mind was back. And, but what happened, it was just at the time that I had, moved to, to Vancouver from Toronto about a year later and I, oh no, it's back, oh my God. Anyway, 
I was expected to show up. I had new writing groups and therapy groups and you name it about to begin. And I kept getting this message. You need to tell your story. And I kept going, oh, you don't mean me. And at that time I was facilitating, oh, I, I facilitated a support group for the book, The Artist's Way for 15 years, because I am such a proponent of how creativity can make mental illness into mental illness, wellness, wellness. I can't believe I said that, into mental health, wellness, what's going on? And well, you come from hell to so well, because we have an impulse to create. And when that impulse goes away, a part of our, our, our spirit gets, gets lost. So after I was in that hospital, I made that choice, even though it frightened me. Oh, I thought, well, now I'll lose my career if I don't go back to work and I tell my story. You know, who's going to want to see a therapist who has bipolar, et cetera, et cetera. But I did and co-wrote a play to dispel myths and stigmas about mental illness. And uh, it was uh, hard, hard, hard. But instead of losing my career, it allowed people to come up and tell their story. And at one point, it wasn't about me anymore. It was about the message. And the message is you're not your diagnosis. You're not your pathology. And so coming on your show, Jackie, was a no-brainer for me, even though it's still scary. Um, it's necessary. And I have such respect for what you're doing, your daughter. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. The journey that you went on, this journey from secret to the message of you're not your diagnosis. That journey made the which, okay, I'm, I'm going to find a way to ask this. Which leg of the journey was more challenging? The journey from secret to you're not your diagnosis or from you're not your diagnosis to I survived suicide attempts? Which one was more difficult? Mm -hmm. The first one. The first one for me. Um, could you repeat what the first one was? Because what yeah, you were saying, it. and it just resonated so much, but I probably have some trigger around it. Because <laughs> it quickly went, whoop, yep. from secret. From secret. Oh, See, gosh, I'm, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's this concept of from secret to success. My first book was Your Path from Secret mm. to Success, and it was a sales training guide. I mean, it's actually a daily activity every day for seven weeks, seven days a week for seven weeks to, on sales. And that was as close as I could get to allowing myself to be visible. There was not much vulnerable in that book. And so your journey from keeping everything a secret and I'll lose my career and it's okay for me to help other people write about this stuff, but I can't to co-authoring and creating the You're Not Your Diagnosis. I see that as just a huge act of bravery. Thank you very much. I actually do too. I can, I can take that in today. I do too, because it has been my life experience. And um, 
you know, and it took me 20 years after that, because this was 1971 when the play went on. And then it was after my last attempt when I woke up awake, like seriously awake, where I was in a state of grace and it just continued. And that I wrote my first book, Rewrite Your Life, Transformational Guide to Writing and Healing. And, but it's only told very recently that I'm writing this new book to share, to be a light and a beacon of hope around this very painful subject, which was my attempts. And, you know, I don't believe anybody just starts out wanting to do this. There are reasons along the way. And, um, and without going into, even in my book, the, you know, all of the whatever I experienced, it's not a focus on the, the necessarily on the hell I might have lived, but it was the way through. And I think that's vitally important. I think it's vitally important as well, because we can really get caught up in what are the causes, what are the causes. And I think when people are what they're really looking for, they're looking for a checklist that says, not my kid, not my kid, not my kid, not my kid. I'm okay. I don't have to talk about it. And I so lived that story. Yes. And it almost cost me my daughter. So that's why I do what I do is because I can spot that elephant when somebody's pushing on me for what was wrong, what was wrong, what were the causes, what were the causes. My gut now says, uh-huh, you're looking for reassurance that your kid's okay, that your loved one's okay. And I'm the wrong person to give it. I am a firm believer. We're, these are the, this is the age of the suicide wars. War with two A's. We're all at risk. And we are all at risk for three very, very, very subtle reasons, in my opinion. And, and the first one deals with celebrityism. According to the Center for Disease Control, the biggest risk factor for suicide is if you have a previous attempt. People can check that off. I've never tried to take my own life. I'm good, right? But the second one is, if you know someone who's taken their own life, if you know someone who's died by suicide, you're in a higher risk group for suicide. Well, now thanks to social media, we all know a gifted comedian, a talented chef, a, you know, a, a celebrity singer who've taken their own life. The celebrityism in social media has actually put our whole culture more at risk. Hmm. And I was really shocked when I realized that that's what has happened. So we've got those factors. Okay. And then people want to check those off. All right. Well, I, I, I don't, I didn't even like him. You know, he wasn't my favorite actor or whatever. So, so they try to put the arms distance. But the reality is that we're at risk when we lose our moorings. You know, when what we think is normal, it gets taken away. And courtesy of COVID, we all have had that happen. Every single one of us has been impacted with this absolute awareness that we don't have control. Right. Now, some of us got this message when we became parents that we didn't right. have control. Right. Oh, my oldest daughter's been picking on me. Now I'm going to pick on her. She's my tech support. You met her, Katie. 
before Katie was two, she taught me that I had zero control over her. She could open every child guard lock known to man. And she was about 18 months old. She walked into the living room after I thought I'd put her to bed. Not too unusual, but she walked in carrying the rails of her crib. She had dismantled it. So I had no illusion of parental control at that point. <laughs> uh, but, you know, some beliefs die hard, and I kept thinking it would come back. Yeah. Um, it, was, it was a thought. The value of understanding that we're all at risk means that we need to talk about it. It's safe to talk about it. Because, Ginny, I don't know about you, but I really was scared that if I talked about suicide with my daughters, I would be putting the thought in their head. Hmm. I didn't know then that suicidal thoughts are normal, that they're a naturally occurring part of our problem solving, our worst case scenario mechanism. Freud talked about it back in the day, but I wasn't a reader of Freud. You know, I was just a single mom raising kids. Your willingness to talk about it is going to change the world, in my view. Tell me more about your book, the one you're writing now. Oh, <laughs> well, it's just the beginnings of the book, um, but I have a lot of things that are already written. Um, it's, it's truly a book about... Um, ways through and it's and it's not just skipping the the hard parts at all I mean I want it to be relatable right so it's not nice pretty poetic words to make oh yeah whatever you were asking one of the other uh, speakers today oh yeah and then I divorced my husband and then I went on to whoa 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 how did you go from this to that so I'm not planning on just saying, oh, yeah, and I, you know, and I just wandered off and did da 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 da. And then, but then I just, you know, went and got an ice cream cone and I was all better. Uh, <laughs> today it seems to work, but <laughs> so no, you know, I, I will give some history and some, some context, absolutely. But I, so that people can recognize themselves. Mm -hmm. And I guess what will come into it as well is the last book that I wrote, which is called Your Life Matters, is to really help people recognize that their life matters. And, you know, as a therapist and going through my own journey on being both sides of the couch, the one common denominator that I have found with everybody, no matter what they've accomplished in their life, they don't see it. Mm -hmm. Most people have such low self-esteem, they just don't get everything that they have contributed to. Oh, I was just a mom. Excuse me? <laughs> just a single mom. Excuse me? Oh. You know, oh, the, the sorts of things that people can, I mean, I help people write their books mm -hmm. and they just go, oh, yeah, well, that was nothing. That was nothing that no, no. And so it's to help people value themselves and recognize something I did not at my worst 
Mm. And you, you, you nailed it. People will be better off without me. I did feel that way because I felt like I was a burden because I couldn't just switch on a, slip, a, a switch and suddenly even go out for a walk. And they knew that it would be better for me if I did. So did I, but I couldn't. And so, yeah. So the book is so much about offering hope and resiliency and, 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 and the sorts of things that in their heart of hearts, if they could suddenly wave a magic wand and, 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 and suspend judgment about everything that's going on right now and possibly come into even one thing that they used to love or could imagine themselves loving. What would that be? And how could we step into it? Baby steps. Oh, that's such a lovely thing. It really is. That one thing, because that can put a crack in the sidewalk. That can, that can give the opportunity for what I call the flower of hope to, to be able to come through. I think that we need more analogies. We need more. And yeah, I get a book that's all pretty language is not going to resonate with people who are not leading pretty lives. And we need some pretty language. We need some imagery that gives people something to hang on to. My favorite one lately is the flower that grows through the crack in the sidewalk. Uh, yeah, so that's my favorite one lately because it's like, okay, that's hope. Hope is a flower that can, that can grow through a crack in the sidewalk. And optimism is what waters it and nurtures it and it uh -huh. provides the sunshine. I love that. I wish I had the picture on hand because that is actually the picture that I have for the Rewrite Your Life um, on my, it's a, it's a course online, is that flower that comes out of the concrete. Oh, isn't that funny? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the first lesson. Oh, how cool is that? All right. So cracking the concrete. I love the fact that you're doing another book. You know, it's, there, there cannot be enough voices that say you're safe. You're not broken. Let's get some help. And for me, having the conversation before somebody's showing any signs or any symptoms. And I'll be talking about it tonight, actually, on another episode tonight about how to have this particular conversation in a way that makes sense and that, you know, can take all the fear out of it. So you've got a fan club, I know, who believe that you are helping everyone learn how to help themselves. And I think that that's exactly what this new book is going to be. Thank you so much. Thank I'm you. Super excited about that. Now, let's talk a little bit because we've, we've got a gift for everybody. And I'm just going to check because I think it's right here. And it's uh, this interesting rewrite book. And so what is it that you that most people struggle with when it comes to rewriting? Well, first, it's acknowledging that there's something to rewrite. It, it, it's, it's, it's coming into the awareness that, that you can, 
that number one that you that it's it's it, so in order to come into the present moment and not carry all the pain and the burden um, of that backpack filled with rocks um, and and we you come to that awareness that I've got to take that off and how do I do that and when you can recognize that it's time it's time to take off the, the victim hat um, of of it's all everybody else's fault it's the husband it's the government it's the who aha, you know and and recognize well what is my part in this too and how can I look at it differently so I think that's a really important part is awareness. And once you have that is finding the tools. So in this particular book, I mean, writing's always been my thing. Writing has been my way since I was a little kid. Somebody gave me a diary and I filled it up because it was my safe place, my only safe place. Oh, I to, get that. Right. And so, and I recognized it very early that it was uh, both a healing and creative tool. So, so the book itself is looking at the situations in our lives and we all go through everything, being human. We're gonna experience grief. We're gonna experience loss. We're gonna experience joy. We're gonna experience all of it. And so how do we rewrite the stories of our personal lives and start to see that there's hope so that we can leave the past in the past and live fully in today. And so the, the book is actually filled with so many inspired, inspiring stories from people who I've worked with, mostly it's that, who have transformed their life by rewriting their stories as well as every chapter, which is a different theme that we all go through, a time I was stronger than I, that I thought and everything, but my mom, but my father, there are writing prompts so mm. that you can actually write, if you don't know where to start, you can read them and yeah, so it's a lot about rewriting. Oh, that's such a great gift. I mean, it really, really is to be able to help people get started on something so amazing as rewriting your show. Rewriting, not your show, but in your story. You can tell, for me, it's all a show. Um, in a way it is. Yeah, in a way it is, yeah. In a way it is. What did Shakespeare say? The world's a stage and we're all the uh, actors. Yeah, we, yeah, something, yeah, all the world's a stage. And that is, that is my truth, is that all the world is a stage. What I had to do, Jenny, was to write myself in as a speaker and rewriting that identity was such a challenge. I love the fact that you spoke to the challenges that people have with sharing their story and thinking that their story is so insignificant. I, I had an interesting moment that I'll share with people because it seems to be a pretty common struggle. I was in the audience and a lady named Flygirl, that was what she was known as, was on stage and she was sharing her story. She is the first African-American female fighter pilot in the United States military. And she shared all of this, you know, the struggles and what happened you know, after the fact, after the military and, and how she ended up becoming a speaker. 
And I had the chance to go to the microphone. And I've always believed that if there's a microphone nearby, you should move towards it, even if you don't know what you're going to say. Mm. And I, when I got the microphone, I was able to ask the question. I'm like, okay, so I'm not a fighter pilot. I'm not, you know, the first in anything that, you know, I'm not a groundbreaking kind of person. And she's like, she asked me, did I know Lisa Nichols? Yeah, well, okay, Lisa Nichols, one of the people in The Secret. You know, I mean, I had knew of her and had been around that, that arena. And she said, you know, Lisa's whole story is that she's a single mom. And I went, what? Lisa Nichols is absolutely famous and her whole story is the, the lessons that, and the life of being a single mom. And I went, I'm a single mom. My mom was a single mom. Oh, people would really care. Yeah, and it's, it's like, because it's a normal thing. It's, a, it's the common character, if you will, in a story. And I thought because it was so common, nobody would care as opposed to they would see themselves in my story. And I so appreciate you being willing to show up and let people see themselves in your story, Jude. Thank you, Jackie. I thought of um, when you said, um, if there's a mic, you should go and speak into it. And that takes a lot of courage. And the, the day that we performed Madness, Masks and Miracles was the, was the name of the, the, the play. And um, the madness that we all go through in our life, the, the grief, the heartbreak, all of that. And then the masks we wear to hide it and then the miracles that allow us to take it off. That morning, I got a call from somebody that um, said, Judith Malice took her life today. No. And I never, I never met her, but I was asked to go and work with her and be with her and didn't happen because I was waiting for her to reach out to me because I didn't want to just walk in and just say, I'm a therapist, you know, and it didn't happen because all the rehearsals, everything else. And so I felt awful. And afterwards, one of the people who knew her really well said, Junie, will you come and speak at her celebration of life? I said, I don't know what I would say. She said, well, you don't need to know right now. And I said, yeah, I guess you're right. So I did. And you couldn't get another person in that, in that uh, church. And she was so loved. And then they called my name at some point. Her brother said, well, Junie, will you come up and say something? And you, I, I said, I didn't know Judith. And you could hear a pin drop. I said, but I know of her illness firsthand. And I just talked a little bit about, about how hard it can be for some people. And please, if you feel you didn't do enough or give enough or say enough, or please let go of the guilt. And anyway, a lot of, and, and, I, and I didn't know where, what I'd say, but it's amazing how many times I just been able to let the light just comes in and I, the words seem to come when I think beforehand, I'm gonna faint. <laughs> it's the magic of being willing 
being willing to stand in front of a microphone without needing to know what's going to come out of your mouth. If there's a gift of surviving, it might be the gift of not being held back anymore by fear. So true. And um, that's what I'm hearing in your story. Thank you. Well, my, I think the, 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 the biggest uh, why or motivation I do what I do is to help people find their voice. Mm -hmm. You know, whether they're going to put their voice in a book and have a million people see it, or they just have their voice in their own world to be able to speak to the people who matter to them and be able to have their strength to do that, then that's so important because so many of us had our voices robbed when we were kids. So finding your voice, speaking up, sharing your voice and allowing other people to support and help you. So that's my wish for everyone listening to this. And whether you're here live or whether you're watching the recording, look in the chat and in the show notes, because there is the gift from Junie, Rewrite Your Life. And you can find it on her website at her website, transform slash transform. But grab that and get support for getting your voice out in the world. Getting your voice in the world, you may never know whose life you'll save, whose life you will impact. And Jenny, you may never know whose life you may save by sharing your words today. I just want to say thank you for being you. Oh, likewise, and right back at you, Jackie love what you do and thank you so much for inviting me to join this extraordinary summit you're very welcome okay bye for now oh.